<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, in a busy six months so far, President Biden has devoted most of his time and attention to domestic issues, COVID-19, infrastructure, voting rights, minimum wage, student debt, gun safety, and other priorities. But you know, foreign policy is never far behind. Now, especially, the president faces several difficult foreign policy challenges, restoring relations with our allies, ending the war in Afghanistan, rejoining the Iran nuclear deal, uh, and getting back into the Paris Climate Accord, standing up to Vladimir Putin and an ever more aggressive China, and dealing with the ever-present threat of nuclear weapons. So today, for our first look on the Bill Press Pod on how Biden's doing on the foreign policy front, we turn to one of Washington's most respected analysts, one of Senator Bernie Sanders' national security team, and a former head of the Plowshares Fund, Joe Cirincione. Joe Cirincione, I know you're a regular listener to the Bill Press Pod. It's an honor to welcome you today as a guest. Welcome. Well, well, it's wonderful. Thank you very much for having me on. You are an essential listening for me twice a week, especially I especially Whoa. enjoy your round table at the end of the week. It's, oh. Can't miss, can't miss for me. All right. Well, great. Thanks, Joe. So uh, we have a uh, looking at the general field of foreign policy and challenges today. Uh, we have a new president and a new national security team. Uh, give us your take on uh, how good this team is. They up to the job? Well, the team is excellent. This may be the best national security team we've seen since George H.W. Bush, you know, the team led by, by James Baker and others. Uh, excellent, outstanding personnel, clearly the most diverse uh, team we've ever had, gender, ethnic uh, identity, not so much in ideology. They tend to be very centrist. They represent the, the sort of the Biden wing of the party right now. And they're not yet in place. We'll get to that. But, you know, he's only got his top leadership in so far. He's still waiting for the, all the other assistant secretaries, undersecretaries to take his place. So we haven't seen the team fully operate yet. Why aren't the, the rest of them in place? Is it that Biden hasn't appointed or Congress has not confirmed? He's been pretty good on the appointments, but Congress is dragging his heels, particularly the Republicans are put, uh, putting up specious objections to, for example, the, um, the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security claiming that she was involved in an advisory group for the State Department at the, the time a decision was made to end the investigation into the Wuhan uh, laboratory that might have been the, the the start of the virus, you know, things like that, completely unrelated, but they're putting them on hold, approved by the committee, can't get a confirmation vote on the on the Senate side. Um, so, so things are going very slowly. And you've got a very hawkish Senator Robert Menendez in charge of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So Biden has to be careful that he doesn't engage in any controversial foreign affairs uh, issues that might jeopardize his nominations, particularly around the issue of Iran. 
So in dealing with challenges in the world today, uh, what kind of a handicap does the Biden administration face because of four year, after four years of Donald Trump? Well, this is largely what Joe Biden is doing. He's, a, he's repairing the damage. You know, I think of him as having two major goals in foreign policy and national security. One is restoring American leadership, and the other is redefining national security. These are complementary in my mind, but they're in a certain tension with each other. For example, the different wings of the Democratic Party will favor one uh, over the other. Centrists favor restoring American leadership, a return to the status quo pre-Trump, the damage that Trump did to the alliance systems, but also correcting the damage that George W. Bush did with his um, invasions of Iraq and and, uh, Afghanistan that put us in a hole and made many people around the world question American leadership. Obama began that repair job, but never really completed it. Trump came in and just took a wrecking ball to the whole thing. So you see Biden doing that in his visit to NATO, for example, in his summit with Putin. Progressives are more attracted to the other, looking for a um, expanded, modernized view of what constitutes our national security. I I think Biden's focusing on the first so far, but you see elements of what he calls calls reimagining national security already coming out in his goals, in his rhetoric, in his speeches. So you think he's open to that second goal? He's open to what progressives want, even if he's not there yet? Oh, Oh, very much. I mean, this is one of the most exciting things about the Biden presidency. You know, as I say, he's from the centrist wing, but he's embraced this idea of reimagining national security, something that many people have been talking about, particularly since the pandemic began. Um, I've written uh, on it, for example. And when he introduced his national security team in November of last year, Jake Sullivan took a good part of his three minutes. He's the new national security advisor, the youngest Mm -hmm. national security advisor in history, to say that Biden had tasked them with reimagining national security. What he meant by that was to include the pandemic, the economic crisis, the climate crisis, technological disruptions, threats to democracy, racial injustice, and inequity in all its forms. And you can see Biden doing this. He, He means this. He thinks that America's strength comes from America being strong. You hear him say the phrase, a foreign policy for the middle class, or leading by the power of our our example, rather than the example of our power. So you hear him say these things, and that's why he's concentrating on the pandemic, on the economic recovery, um, on racial justice, voting rights. He thinks these are essential to a strong national security. If he carries this through, it could be a really breathtaking transformation. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel to uh, Biden's definition of infrastructure, which today, of course, is a lot more expensive than it was in the 1950s. And some of the Republicans in Congress are stuck with the 1950s of roads and highways only de- definition. Uh, back to foreign policy, Joe, if you if you look around the globe today, uh, what would you tick off as the three, four or five uh, major challenges? Just mention them and then we'll go back and talk about each one. Well, I think you'd have to say that it was um, getting out of Afghanistan, mm-hmm. getting back, right. getting back in, into the Iran deal, um, setting limits for Putin, um, mm-hmm. and and perhaps uh, avoiding a, a, a new unnecessary conflict with China. 
these are some of the, the tough challenges that I think he faces. Uh, so let's start with uh, Afghanistan. Uh, the There are critics who say uh, that he's pulling out too soon uh, and that chaos will certainly follow. Did Biden make the right decision? Oh, I think he, he definitely did. And he, you know, as he says uh, in his speech defending his decision, you know, how many more thousands are we going to commit to this? Show me how committing more troops, show me how staying is going to result in a different outcome than the one we have. This is a war that uh, started out well and succeeded in its original mission, disrupting al-Qaeda, routing them from the country, but then veered seriously off course, never really had a defined series of objectives or a strategy of how to achieve those objectives. And we've engaged in 20 years of feudal nation building at great cost and lives and and treasure. No, George uh, W. Bush should have pulled out. Obama should have pulled out. Biden is finally doing the right thing, the sensible thing. And um, in effect, and I know you've you've spoken about this, Joe, um, Biden's, there's a certain risk here, right? I mean, he is basically admitting we lost a war, right? I mean, that took a lot of guts. Yeah, he's trying to avoid the word failure. You hear him Mm -hmm. avoid that. But that is what this is. This is another failed war. This is as, as failed as the Vietnam War. This is as failed as the Iraq War. But an American leader really can't say that. But he's cutting our losses. Um, he's trying to n- not to say that the soldiers died in vain, but I, I think they did. This is a mission we never should have gone into. And, you know, I've been reading the Afghan papers, this brilliant series that the Washington Post uh, published uh, t- two years ago, where we have uh, frank interviews with commanders in the field, with U.S. officials. And it's very clear that from the early days, like in Vietnam, the generals knew we didn't have a strategy. They knew we weren't winning, but they mm. consistently lied to the American public. That they, they kept talking about how we were turning the corner. And what they really meant was that we were going in circles. Right. Uh, And when he made the announcement that uh, uh, our mission in Afghanistan would be officially ended on August 31, even though Bagram Air Force Base has already been abandoned, uh, the president was asked the inevitable question, uh, look at where the Taliban is today. Uh, What about in the future? Here's that uh, the president's response. Is the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. Because you have the Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped, as well-equipped as any army in the world, and an air force against something like 75,000 Taliban. It is not inevitable. Joe, 85% of the territory they now control. He's right it's not inevitable, but I do think it's likely. I think we have to be prepared for the, the fall of Kabul or the collapse of an incompetent, unpopular, deeply corrupt government. I think you're seeing signs of this. And when you see Afghan troops deserting uh, in mass, 1,000, 1,200 fleeing over, over the border to Tajikistan, for example, last week, uh, you know, why defend this government? What does this government represent to you? Why give your life to this government. And he's right. There is, Biden's right. There are 350,000 Afghan troops. But as the Afghan papers reveal, <laughs> a lot of uh, the U.S. generals didn't think much of these troops. Right. Uh, you know, didn't think much of them. So they're there. 
Um, but they could crumble. What they have going in their favor is that Kabul's got six million people, and and it might not be the government that it that defends it, but it could be newly formed militias. It could be the people themselves. It would be hard for the Taliban to just take Kabul or some of the other provincial capitals. So I don't expect an imminent collapse, but we have to prepare for this eventuality, just like we saw in South Vietnam. Well, yeah. What lesson did we learn from Afghanistan? Same lesson we learned in Vietnam? That we don't know how to nation build, that we didn't know what we were doing. We had no knowledge of the country. We came and imposed or thought we could impose a Western model. Remember, the, the reason there wasn't an exit plan from Afghanistan or Iraq is that the neocons that got us into these wars never wanted to leave, that they thought that we would be establishing an American presence in the Middle East, and that would expand. I mean, the idea was to move on from Baghdad to conquer Tehran and maybe even influence what was going on in Saudi Arabia. We would expand American geopolitical power in the Middle East for generations to come. This was a fallacy. This was foolish. This was the dreams of of empire. Yeah, we, we once again learned that America is not good at empire building and that Afghanistan really is the place where empires go to die. Right. Uh, (laughs) As we've seen so many times in the past. You mentioned uh, next uh, relations with Russia, particularly with Vladimir Putin. We've seen President Biden in his first summit with Vladimir Putin. He talked to him again last week on the subject of uh, cybersecurity. What options do we have uh, in terms of Russia's continuing Russian uh, operatives, continued involvement in attacking government agencies here and the private sector, Joe? Well, you know, remember, the United States is in a very strong position vis-a-vis Russia. You know, we're the ones with the the global economy, the global alliance structure. Russia has got an economy the size of Italy's, no offense to Italy. You know, it's it's just won won the Euro Cup. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Their only ally really is Belarus, uh, not much. Um, But the cyber warfare presents a a difficult challenge. And what you see Biden doing is trying to put some guardrails up, try to take some lessons from arms control like there's and set limits. You saw him at the the summit, for example, he gave Putin a list of 16 entities. He said were off limits to cyber attack, including transportation, uh, finance, financial systems, etc. And he's also got the threat of, of deterrence by threatening to launch his own cyber attacks. And you got to know that he, he's got that, you know, in his back pocket, a plan to cripple some of Putin's uh, key assets. We can do that. You don't want to go there because, uh, you know, the escalatory problem, you don't know wh- where it ends. But th- those are the levers that he has. Those are the, the strengths that he brings to this discussion. Uh, the chances of success uh, we don't know. We've, this is brand new territory. We're, we're marching into a kind of conflict, a kind of showdown we haven't seen before. One thing for sure, uh, there's a different kind of relationship between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin than there was between, again, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what, what you th- think about that. But you clearly, <laughs> Biden is not, is not uh, uh, subservient to Putin. He's standing up to Putin. But not in a particularly macho way, just in a fairly strong, steady way. I, I, I like the way he's handling this so far. 
he he certainly is never he Joe Biden will never say that he trusts Vladimir Putin more than he trusts our own intelligence agencies which yeah. of course Trump's famously said i mean the only thing we can we ever concluded uh out of um watching Trump and Putin was everybody the the question everybody was asking what does Putin have on Trump that Trump <laughs> feels he has to kiss his butt every time he sees him right and yeah. of course we still don't know the uh, the answer to that, but where we hear most saber rattling today, Joe, and you mention it, of course, is vis-a-vis China. I mean, uh, the defense hawks really feel we have to confront China almost uh, on every level. How big a threat is China today? Is it an economic threat or a military threat or both? And um, where do we go here? You know, even using that word puts us into sort of a conflict uh, framework. They certainly are a competitor, you know, Mm -hmm. and they certainly are an economic competitor. They're on the verge of passing the United States as the biggest economy in the world. But they don't have our global alliances. They don't have the global systems that we created, you know, 70, 75 years ago. But they're looking to put up alternatives to that. For example, in the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, they're, they're, they're... they're not a military threat directly to the United States, except for the 90 or so ICBMs that could, could reach us, which, of course, um, could destroy America. It doesn't take that many nuclear weapons to destroy a country. They're mainly a military threat on their borders. And so when we talk about the military threat from China, what we're talking about is the ability of the Pacific fleet to operate freely off of China's coast. We're not talking about China invading California or Long Island. You know, so, so we got to keep this in, in context. And a great deal depends on how we handle this competition. Henry Kissinger said, said years ago that China is a competitor and how we handle the competition will determine whether they become an adversary. I think that's still true today. Well, we saw just a couple of days ago that Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken uh, warned China about its um, expansion in the South China Sea. which was basically the same policy as uh, Donald Trump held vis-a-vis China and the the Philippines. And and, and this is part of what the Biden team is trying to do, by the way. They're still in the business of sort of creating the Biden persona. Who who is Biden? And they want him to be a man who is reasonable, but that he he stands up to our adversaries. And unfortunately, I think that the team has sort of bought into the, the thinking in Washington, what Ben Rhodes calls the blob that sees China as the new threat, the threat that replaces the war on terrorism, which replaced the Cold War. Hmm. And the defense contractors are jumping all over this because you know a possible confrontation with China justifies a whole new generation of weapons. They're all saying, forget those, what they now call legacy systems, everything we built to date. We need a whole new set of weapons. We need to remodel our whole frontline air, land, and sea forces. So so the threat's got great currency. The China conflict has great currency in Washington. I'm hoping Biden can resist some of this, but um, it, it, I, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's hardly a new threat, right? I mean, so many presidents, even before Nixon, but certainly from Nixon on, have been wrestling with this proper approach to China. Uh, I was struck this week uh, hearing uh, the great Daniel Ellsberg, who released, of course, the Pentagon Papers, um, a great service to this nation, um, uh, tell about back in 1958, 
where he discovered that the United States was really ready to use nuclear weapons to defend Taiwan against the Chinese government. Here's a clip from Daniel Ellsberg, Joe, from the podcast Ground Truth, talking about uh, 1958. At the very end of April 2021, I read a piece by Tom Friedman in the New York Times that talked about the possible necessity of armed conflict with China over the independence of Taiwan. And that, of course, raised in my mind the issue of 1958, when our leaders had decided on the necessity of using nuclear weapons to defend Taiwan. If there is an issue of the possible conflict over the status of Taiwan, in which case almost surely there would be advocates on the U.S. side of threatening and preparing to use nuclear weapons against China. What we know now, which we didn't know in 58, was that such a war would cause nuclear winter. In other words, the whole world is held hostage to U.S. secret policy in terms of defending Taiwan. Is that still our policy today? Yeah, it still is. I was struck by reading documents that Dan released you know, there, there was an unclassified report put out by Mort Halpern, by the way. He's the, mm. the analyst in the Department of Defense who wrote this report a, a long time ago. But it didn't include these classified portions that Dan released that showed the discussion among the Joint Chiefs of Staff was, was proceeding on the assumption that we would use nuclear weapons. And that various um, generals, including the chairman of the Joint Staff, was was proposing that we go in and complained that we shouldn't be dissuaded from using nuclear weapons by what he called some misguided humanitarian's intention to limit the war to obsolete iron bombs. <laughs> and Whoa. nobody knew. I, I had never seen this before. The 58 crisis over Kamoi and Matsu, the islands that Taiwan controlled that the Chinese were shelling at the time, the Red Chinese. Um, we knew all that and we knew we came close, but we didn't know that the military was planning for this. And still... These are some of the options that are available to us, options that Donald Trump uh, made real by introducing so-called low-yield nuclear weapons, weapons that we would, could use first in a conflict for exactly the kinds of bombing uh, missions that these the staff were discussing. We still have a doctrine that allows the U.S. to start a nuclear war, to go first in a nuclear war. Well, this well, is me... one thing that Joe Biden could do, uh, and I'm hopeful he might take a crack at changing this doctrine so we don't get as close to nuclear war as we did then and still could. Well, let me be sure I understand. The United States does not have a no first strike policy? Uh, that's right. So we reserve the right to start a nuclear war not just if we're threatened by nuclear weapons, but if we're threatened by chemical weapons, biological weapons, a large-scale conventional attack under the Trump policy, which is still the policy of the United States, including using nuclear weapons to respond to a cyber attack. So yes, the use of nuclear weapons is quite expansive in, in U.S. official policy, just as, almost as, just as expansive as it was in 1958. Wow, that is uh, stunning and scary. And Joe, you and I remember a time when nuclear weapons uh, was uh, something that everybody talked about. There were people marching in the streets for getting rid of nuclear weapons, or at least uh, reducing uh, the number of them on both sides. It's something that it seems nobody is talking about today. Um, and rather than countries reducing the number of nuclear weapons, 
Um, my understanding is that both the United States and Russia are now building new ones. What's the status today? Well, after decades of nuclear reductions begun by Ronald Reagan and continued under every president until Trump, we have reduced the world's nuclear arsenals, and U.S. and Russia have about 90% of those weapons. We've reduced them by over 80%. So we've come down a long way, but there are still 13,000 nuclear weapons in the world, most of them held by the United States and Russia, and reductions have stopped. Every single nuclear-armed country is building new nuclear weapons, including the United States. We are in an arms race. Yeah, we, are, we are building new types of weapons. We're declaring new missions for these weapons. The budget that Joe Biden just approved continues all of the weapons that Trump had, including the new ones that he added, and is devoting close to $50 billion a year for these weapons, plus another $20 billion on missile de defense systems. So this is quite serious. This is why you brought up Dan Ellsberg. Dan and I and uh, Governor Jerry Brown and some leaders of, of NGO groups in Washington were just in a conversation last week trying to see what we could do to devise a new strategy that could convince the Congress, convince the president to reduce the nuclear weapons, reduce the budgets, and begin some serious reduction talks with Russia, reduction talks that we haven't had for over 10 years. Well, you know, Joe, um, I pay pretty close attention to this stuff here in Washington, but um, I guess I must have missed the big congressional debate about spending $50 billion building new nuclear weapons. Um, yeah. yeah, that that uh, I guess there, in fact, was not any debate over it at all, right? Well, you know, this is part of the general problem of Congress's retreat from foreign affairs and, and foreign policy. There haven't been investigative hearings into the Afghan war, lessons learned, what did we know, for example, nothing like that. The, there's no commission on the failures of the Iraq war. And on the, the budget, I, I, I'm... I believe that the national security budget of the United States is deeply corrupted, that the process is broken, that this Americans have almost no say in what weapons we buy, what missions we undertake. The thing is just wired from top to bottom um, by the lobbyists. There's over 700 uh, registered lobbyists on national security in Washington. The defense companies spend about $100 million a year to make sure these contracts go through. They sprinkle contracts throughout almost every congressional district. So no, Bill, you're absolutely right. You don't see many people raising a hand saying, wait, why are we building this weapon? What do we need it for? They just go through. And those who do object, like the Progressive Caucus, they're, they're, they're fringes. They're, they're shoved to the sidelines and don't get the kind of voice that they should have. Well, we count on you and Jerry Brown and Daniel Ellsberg to <laughs> to change that, uh, hopefully. Uh, lots of hot spots. We've uh, touched on a few of them so far here with our guest, Joe Cirincioni, former head of the Plowshares Fund. Um, but there are more to cover. Uh, Joe, uh, hold on. We're going to take a quick break here on the podcast, and then we'll uh, resume our uh, little tour of the global hotspots. And you know, every once in a while on the podcast, we recommend uh, one of our great grassroots organization that deserves your attention and support. And in talking to Joe Cirinzoni today, we certainly recommend that you take a look at the Plowshares Fund. Plowshares Fund was created back in 1981, and no organization has done more 
than the Plowshares Fund to prevent the spread and use of nuclear weapons and to prevent the kind of conflicts that could lead to their use. They are, in fact, today the largest philanthropic foundation focused exclusively on getting rid of nuclear weapons. So check out their website at Plowshares. That's the British spelling, P-L-O-U-G-H, plowshares.org. Believe me, if we ever, as the Bible in uh, the book of Isaiah says, if we ever get around to beating our swords into plowshares, it will be thanks in great part to the work of the Plowshares Fund, plowshares.org. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we're back. Our guest, Joe Cirincione, he is a member of uh, Senator Bernie Sanders' National Security t- Security Team, uh, well-respected, well-known expert on particularly nuclear proliferation here in Washington, D.C., and former head of the Plowshares Fund. Uh, Joe, we were talking about nuclear weapons, uh, and it uh, wasn't so long ago, the focus on nuclear weapons and getting rid of them was on the Korean Peninsula, Donald Trump holding three summits with Kim Jong-un, uh, what did we get out of that? Uh, we got nothing concrete out of that. <laughs> uh, one of the things, and this is one of the areas where I agreed with Donald Trump, that it was good to talk to our adversaries, uh, and that it was it was worth the effort to try to make a deal directly with Kim Jong-un. It's just that he did it so poorly. I mean, it wasn't just that Donald Trump himself was mentally unstable, is that he had incompetent people with him. So when he went to Hanoi, the Hanoi summit with Kim Jong-un, for example, there was a deal to be had there. There was some in his State Department uh, um, that had a plan for a step-by-step approach 
to reducing the North Korean arsenal, pretty much like the Iran deal. We freeze it, shrink it, we lift sanctions, we go step by step to roll it back. But John Bolton insisted on a completely different model. It was all or nothing that, that North Korea mm-hmm. had to give up everything before we did anything. That, of course, failed. So he left it in, in a wreck. He left us with nothing. Can Joe Biden pick that up? I think there are some that, that the, in his own State Department that think we can, that, that go back to the original plan that some had developed under Trump. Uh, but he's, this is not a front burner issue for him. This is not something Joe Biden wants to take up this year. He'd prefer to defer all this to next year after he's dealt with his domestic priorities. And in terms of denuclearization of the peninsula, right? Nothing has happened. They're still no, right? no, no. Still North building. Korea's, right. North Korea's program has advanced. What has happened is they kept the moratorium on tests, so they haven't done anything provocative. But, you know, you cannot ignore North Korea forever. Uh, They will do something to get our attention. So you can't, I I hope there's some in the State Department who are starting to engage even at a mid-level with with the North Koreans. Um, Because I would expect them to test a long-range missile before the end of the year if they feel they're being ignored. You just mentioned the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, How important was it? And can we still get back in it? This is one of Joe Biden's um, initiatives, so one of the ones he is taking up. As I say, he's concentrating on domestic priorities, but there's some things he can't ignore. You know, he, he has to get out of Afghanistan. He has to deal with, with, with Putin. And he has to get back in the Iran deal. He, he delayed doing so. I, there was a number of people in his rather centrist uh, staff that thought that the Trump approach, pulling out of the deal and imposing new sanctions on Iran, gave us leverage that we could use to make to have Iran mm. make concessions. That didn't happen. It failed as bitterly and disappointingly as Trump's policy did. A complete bust. Maximum pressure was a maximum failure. And it delayed us starting talks with Iran until uh, April. We've now rejoined the talks with the Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese. There were six rounds of negotiation. But because we delayed so much, it brought us right into the Iran presidential elections, which had their own political delays. The, the conservatives in Iran, the supreme leader, didn't want to make a deal that might strengthen the hands of the reformists, President Rouhani, the current president of Iran. Uh, and so he, he delayed concluding the deal. The hardliner won. The hardliner is in place that, or will be in place in September. There's now or late August. There's a transition in place to, to do that. And that's slowing down negotiations. They haven't resumed yet. And, and the longer the, the negotiations take, the, the longer we delay sealing the deal, the more chances there are for hardliners in both countries to kill it. So I would rate the chance of Biden getting back in the deal no better than 60-40 right now. And I would have said it was 100% a few months ago. It may be slipping away from us. Biden's got to move faster. I would encourage him to make a gesture to Iran at this point. For example, um, some humanitarian relief to Iran who is suffering from a fifth wave of of COVID right Mm -hmm. now and can't get the medicines it needs because of U.S. sanctions, Biden could lift some of those sanctions, make a gesture to Iran that could could spur the negotiations on the Iran deal to go forward again. Uh, And in fact, at the time that Trump pulled out, um, the evidence was that Iran was abiding by the deal. 
correct? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. They, they were in strict uh, observance of the deal. Early on, there were a couple of hiccups, but they were straightened out. You know, that deal was the most effective nonproliferation agreement I've ever seen. It shrank Iran's program to a fraction of its original size, um, froze it for a generation and put it in a box with a camera on it. I mean, they weren't going anyplace. We knew exactly what they were doing since after Trump pulled out, the Iran's, Iranians waited a full year before they started making what they called com- compensatory violations of the deal, started installing new centrifuges, started accumulating uh, stockpiles of uranium gas. Now we think they are actually closer to the ability to make the material mm-hmm. for a bomb than they were um, before we started negotiating the original deal. The, the consequences of Trump's policy was to embolden Iran, to strengthen Iran, and to uh, unleash their nuclear program. We've got to put it back in that box. Uh, another important um, international agreement, of course, that Trump quickly pulled out over the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, we're now back in, Joe. Uh, what's next? Part of it is what Biden talks about leading by the power of our example, showing that we're serious about implementing the Paris Climate Accord or going past those goals, which were fairly modest when they when they were formed. And that's what he's trying to do with the infrastructure bill. You know, th- this is about re, re, about transforming the American uh, infrastructure economic system, what our grid looks like, what kind of cars we produce, where the incentives are for, for homeowners to make their homes more energy efficient, buildings, et cetera, et cetera. That's what he's trying to do in this climate uh, a bill. The compromise climate uh, infrastructure bill, rather, doesn't do that. It's only the more expansive uh, bill that mm-hmm. the Democrats alone are crafting that will do that. But you're on top of this, too. What do you think the chances are that he's going to get some of these things in the infrastructure bills? Uh, I think the only way to get the second infrastructure, there'll be, there will be uh, a, a roads and highways infrastructure bill, right? Uh, bipartisan. Yeah. I think the only way to get the second one is going to be uh, uh, by reconciliation and all democratic votes. And hopefully Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema will go along with that. Um, because as we just referenced earlier, clearly infrastructure today, uh, is a lot, means a lot more than it did back in the 1950s. As somebody pointed out, childcare today is just, it may be more essential than a new highway, right? Or a new road. Yeah. For, for so many millions of American workers to be able to get to their job and do their job. Well, this is the potentially big transformational part of Biden's national security agenda, making Absolutely. us see that climate change is part of this. And in some ways, it kind of does echo back to the 1950s. I mean, I went to college on a national student defense loan. That's hmm. what it was called. That's how I could afford uh-huh. college. I, I drove... My mother drove me to college on a highway built under Eisenhower's National Defense Transportation Act. That's what built the original interstate highway system. We saw then that education and transportation were part of uh, the mm-hmm. national defense. Biden's trying to make us think that way again. So one issue that kind of touches on everything we've talked about is the role of Congress uh, in um uh, our decision to employ them to, to deploy the military uh, and the authorization for the use of military force. You and I have talked about this often before. The House has now voted by by a bipartisan vote to get rid of the existing AUMF that was passed right after uh, 
9-11 in 2001. Uh, let me ask you, what are the chances that the Senate is going to do the same? And does Biden support it? Uh, yes, Biden does support it. And that makes the chances that uh, the Senate will follow the House quite good. And this is huge um, that Biden supports this, you know, a president supporting limitations on his own authority. This is a very good thing. Charles Schumer, the uh, majority leader, uh, is in favor of this in the Senate. Uh, I think it's just a matter of scheduling before mm -hmm. it's brought up, and I think it will pass. And this is a good thing. Congress, after all these years, finally asserting at least part of its constitutional authority, that Congress and Congress alone has the authority to declare war. Uh, and in fact, the AUMF of 2001 has been used by uh, Republican and Democratic presidents since for almost anything they wanted to use it for. Yeah, yeah. It came up recently when you know Biden ordered uh, airstrikes uh, right. on Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and uh, and Syria. But but he didn't use the AUMF. He used his Article Two authority, meaning that he was defending. Uh, American troops who had been attacked by by rockets from some of these militia, and that provoked controversy. So you saw people like Senator Tim Kaine speaking up, questioning this, wanting briefings on this, hearings on this. So you're seeing stirrings in Congress, not on the budget, <laughs> which, as I say, <laughs> is pretty rigged, but on war. And the American public is strongly behind us pulling out of the Middle East. And this I would keep my eye on this. It's possible that after Afghanistan and into next year that Biden could do more and pull us more out. The American people want it. We don't need to be there. We didn't have this big presence 20 years ago before 9-11. We don't need this presence. It's a drain on us. And uh, that would be a, another big transformation you can do, changing the American footprint, the American presence in the Middle East, and he has the American public completely behind him. I got to say, I mean, he's going to get attacked on Afghanistan, but I don't think the American public is oh. going to be on the side of the attacks. I don't think the American public cares about Afghanistan. They want us out of there. Yeah, after 20 years, for sure. Uh, so finally, Joe, just to, uh, as proof that uh, you can never plan for everything, events always, uh, every president has been undertake, overtaken by events. Last week, the president of Haiti was assassinated, and immediately there was a call um, by the um, new prime minister of Haiti for the president of the United States to send in American troops to help bring order back to that troubled country. You're president of the United States, Joe. What do you do? Well, <laughs> you don't want to do this. You don't, at a time when you're trying to withdraw the United States from these conflict areas, you don't want to be putting new troops in. The problem you have that is that if Haiti devolves into greater crisis, it's already in crisis, um, you could see a wave of Haitian refugees like we've seen before, people taking the boats to come to America, exacerbating the immigration problem, raising an issue particularly in an election year. So you've got a balancing act here to do. And America's got a long and tangled history with, uh, with oh. Haiti. You may, you may remember Bill Clinton sent troops there yep. in the 1990s uh, to restore, to rebuff a military coup. But it's just <laughs> one of the problems you have is who's asking for them. This is the acting right. prime minister, right? There's yeah. four people who claim to be president of Haiti right now. So I, I hope 
we don't do that. I hope we don't go in. Uh, and instead, and this is, I think their inclination is to see if you can get a UN mission there, um, Organization of American States mission, make it a collective response. Don't m- bring up the colonial aspects of the U.S. presence in the Caribbean and Central America again. Don't have the U.S. doing it. Make it the neighbors of Haiti coming in to help. Right. And as you point out, first you've got to figure out who you would want to help anyhow, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, yeah, it's hard to tell the, uh, the good guys from the bad guys down there at this point. You know, Joe Sierra what a great uh, little plus, a ha- half hour plus here, uh, looking at all the hot spots of the world. My only regret is that you are not right there outside the Oval Office uh, advising Joe Biden. Uh, every 15 minutes on these issues, uh, Joe. But um, Well, thank uh, you very much, Bill. He's got some great people there. I hope he broadens his team and brings in some more progressives into the team. But he, uh, I, I, I have a lot of confidence in Biden. I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing so far. Oh, good. Well, and your voice is still out there, as it is today on the Bill Press Pod, Joe Sirincioni. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and, uh, you know, uh, giving us a little note of hope, I think, here, Joe. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Joe Sirincioni, all about the foreign policy front. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Now take care of yourselves and come back and see us again toward the end of the week. On Friday, we'll be back with this week's roundtable, looking at the big news of the week. And as always, there will be lots to talk about. So stay strong, stay safe, stay sane until we see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.